I didn't know there was an app that you could get that made page turning sounds. I'd like an app that you can bend the pages over um, when you're reading a book. A couple things uh, just that were floating through my mind as um, just worshiping the Lord uh, today. Uh, that song that we sung, Show Us Christ. I think that would be just a brilliant song to go online and print out the lyrics and read it before you have your daily time with the Lord. And to pray that as you read the word that you would get help in times of trouble, help for temptation. That as you read the word, you would see Christ. Um, just a wonderful way to prepare your heart and anticipate that God's word would um, speak to your heart. We come to John chapter 1, and we're at the end of uh, just a short little series that we have done for the month of uh, December. And the goal of the series has been to talk about Jesus. It's Christmas time, and we often think about the little baby that was born to Joseph and Mary. It's his birthday. Uh, we don't really know whether it was December 25th or not. It likely wasn't. But uh, nonetheless, Jesus was born in time and space. That is a historical fact. And so we remember and we recall the birth of Jesus. But one of the things that I, I think sometimes we forget is, who is this Jesus? What do we know about him? And uh, some people just stop at the fact that he's a human, that he had flesh and blood like you and I. But John's nativity scene, which John chapter 1 is, it's really his nativity, gives us an explanation or description of Jesus that points to us to who he was before he was even born and why it's important that we understand that. Because at the end of his gospel, he will tell us that the whole purpose that he has written his book is so that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ. Not that he's just a human being, but that Jesus is the Christ. And that in believing, we might have eternal life. And so it's really important that we understand who Jesus is and we ask that question again and again. For instance, we asked that question so far, we've learned a number of things from uh, John's gospel about who Jesus was. First of all, we realized that Jesus existed before he was born. We can't say that of any other human being, but we can say that of Jesus. John says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus has always existed. Before there was anything, Jesus was. And so John wants us to understand that this baby that was born to Joseph and Mary had always existed before there was anything. But we also realize, as John is uh, explaining to us a little about Jesus, is he tells us also that Jesus is the creator of this whole universe. Everything in this universe, he says, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. That's an astounding statement. That reminds us that this little baby that was born to Joseph and Mary was, in fact, before he was born, the one who created all this world and everything in it, every universe, every animal, every plant, everything we can see, everything that we can't see, all things visible and invisible were created by Jesus. And then he tells us the third thing about him. He says, and in him was life. Not that something gave him life. He doesn't get life from, um, from eating. He doesn't get life because someone provides him breath. Jesus is the very principle of life. In him was life. He gave life to creation. He gives life to you and I. And in fact, he also gives spiritual life. And so life, he is life itself. This baby who was born to Joseph and Mary actually gave life to his mother and father. And then he goes on and he says that this baby was the light of the world. That's referring certainly more 
uh, to much more than just a physical light, although Jesus created the sun and the moon and the stars that give light to our day and direct us in the night. He's also the one that sheds light into our thinking, that passage that Barry read from uh, Proverbs chapter 3. The beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's Jesus who gives light to our intellectual darkness. It is Jesus that gives light to our moral darkness. It is Jesus that signs the truth, the right truth between what's right and what's wrong. And so he is the light of the world that came into this world when people were sitting in darkness. Not physical darkness, but moral and intellectual and spiritual darkness. He's also the one who, in coming to the world, as we put our faith and trust in him, adopts us into his father's family. An incredible statement about this Jesus, that through Jesus, we have entrance into the family of God to become sons and daughters of God. And all of that was encapsulated in verse 14, which Barry opened up to us last week, in which it says, And the word was made flesh. This God, this creator, this life, this light, this one that adopts us into his father's family, this word was made flesh, Jesus Christ. And so as we come to this passage then in 1 John, it's with all that in the background that it's astounding to us that John says in the next day, in verse 21, the next day he saw Jesus. So now we have to fill in that name, Jesus, with all that I've already said. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That phrase, and we'll unpack it in a minute, minute, but that phrase can only make sense if we understand who Jesus is. If he's just a man, he cannot take away the sin of the world. But if he is as John has described him, Jesus the Christ, then by believing in him, we can have eternal life. So John's been describing uh, events that seem to follow one day after another, almost the first day or the first week of Jesus' ministry. The first day seemed to be John's description of Jesus and him being baptized. And then uh, there's, uh, it says the next day in verse 29. And it says the next day in verse 36. And then it says in verse 2 of chapter, uh, uh, chapter 2, verse 1, it says on the third day. So John seems to be recording to us significant events that happened in the first few days of Jesus' ministry. It's a strange phrase, isn't it? Behold, the Lamb of God. Think about the first people that ever heard this, those that were gathered in the wilderness and listening to John, and John looks at Jesus and says, Behold, the Lamb of God. It's just a bizarre kind of phrase or statement that just comes out of the nowhere. nowhere. It's nowhere been used before. And even for us, it can be a strange phrase. If you went out to, to our community and said, Look, uh, Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God, they'd, they'd look at you and say, What are you talking about? It's a strange phrase. And then you add to that, who takes away the sin of the world, and we're even more lost, particularly in the culture in which we live, because sin has been erased, it's, and it's attempted to be erased from our consciousness. And so to say, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world is something that needs a little bit of explanation. We are familiar with the word behold. If you've been part of our church for the last number of months, the book of John, Revelation, sorry, the Revelation of John contains a number of uh, uses of this word behold, and it simply means look. 
I doubt any of you on Christmas morning or when you got together with your family and the tables all said, Behold, Christmas dinner. You might have said, Look at that table. Look at all the fo- food. Can, look at that. Get a picture of that. In other words, uh, it's a word that, that draws our attention, that causes us to stop and to think and to say, Okay, there's something that we just need to look at here. There's something that we need to think about. And so John says, Look over there, Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so for the next few minutes, I just want us to wrap our heads around those few words. What was John thinking when he called Jesus the Lamb of God? Again, what would you have thought? Remember, this is the, uh, this is, uh, you, we don't have the New Testament to fill in the gaps of, of what John is saying here. We're just, for the first time hearing this in the first century A.D., and even if we have the New Testament, uh, it was fascinating to me that the, the word lamb in, in, in reference to Christ is only used in the Gospels four times, and two of them are in John chapter 1 where he says, Behold the Lamb of God. And then we have a reference in Acts to, to um, uh, Isaiah and Christ being the fulfillment of the prophecy of Isaiah. We have a reference in 1 Corinthians where Paul says this is, uh, Christ is the Passover lamb. We have a reference in 1 Peter that says Jesus is the uh, unspotted or unblemished lamb. But then you come to the book of Revelation and there's 29 references to the lamb of God. It seems that John is wanting us to understand that all of Scripture is pointing us to an understanding of the Lamb of God. But this is the first time anywhere this phrase is used um, uh, in the Bible. And it's certainly the first time those people would have heard it. And so what would they have thought about? Well, certainly they would have understood Lamb. Lambs were so much a part of the the day-to-day life of the normal Israeli or Jewish person. They had sacrifices in the temple, morning and evening sacrifices. They would go once a year to um, sacrifice the Passover lamb. They would have read uh, that all the sacrifices, often of them related to a lamb that was sacrificed. And so they would have had some notion, okay, lamb, sacrifice, okay, I, I think that's going on and I can figure that out. Then they might have jumped, some of them who actually put on their thinking caps, might have thought of the Passover lamb uh, from Exodus chapter 21. And it's that uh, Passover celebration that they celebrate even to this day every year. And in Exodus 21, it's part of the Exodus story. It's the 10th plague that God sent on the people of Egypt because they would not let his people go. And it was a plague in which he said to his people, listen, um, the angel of death is going to go through the land and he will slay the firstborn of every single family unless you have the blood of a lamb on your lintel and your doorposts. He says, For I will go through the land of Egypt on that night and I will strike down all the firstborn of the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on these houses where you live. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you or destroy you when I strike the land. And so some of them would have gone to that. And, oh, yeah, it's, you know, there's, there, there is a lamb that was slain and his blood protected us from death. Certainly that's what Paul was thinking of when he said, describe Christ as the Passover lamb. But some of them then might have jumped to Isaiah and the suffering servant passages in Isaiah, and particularly Isaiah chapter 53 where the suffering servant is described as one like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, one who would be pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. 
It was this same passage that the Ethiopian was reading in his chariot, and he didn't understand it. And so God uh, said to Philip, you need to go and explain this to him. And he was reading that passage like a sheep he was led to a slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearers, he was silent, and he opened not his mouth. And so Philip explained to the Ethiopian that that lamb that is being described in Isaiah 53 was in fact Jesus Christ. But those in the first century, and when John spoke this, didn't have the fullness of that explanation yet. So certainly these would have formed part of some of their thinking on John's exclamation, the Lamb of God. But I think in part, John's explanation or exclamation was a prophetic declaration. John was looking ahead three or four years to the time when Jesus would die on the cross and then all the explanations and all the descriptions of one who was like a lamb who would be slain for us would, would become, come into light and we would understand why Jesus was called the Lamb of God. I was struck by that phrase even, the Lamb of God. The preposition is, tells us that this is not my lamb, it's not your lamb, it's God's lamb. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's not my provision. It's not something that comes from my herd. It's not something that I have raised. It's not something that I have fed. It's not something that I have bought. It's not something that I have bought from the temple and brought to God. It is God's Lamb. This is an amazing declaration because now we understand why all the fullness of who Jesus is comes to bear on this title, the Lamb of God. The Lamb of God, Jesus was God's gift, God's provision for the sin of the world. What an amazing sacrifice. Don't miss the divine initiative, the divine um, possession. This is God's Lamb given for the world in Jesus Christ. And as such, it's one of the most precious titles we have of Jesus, is it not? Lamb of God. Then we come to this second phrase, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. As I've said, there's a lot of uh, attempt to erase this notion of sin from our thinking today. But sin is a biblical reality. And it's also a reality of humankind. But on, on virtually every page of the Bible, either implicitly or explicitly, there is something said about sin. It's, the, it's one of the main themes or topics of the Bible, how humankind is estranged from God. But in Jesus, God has acted towards us and taken away the cause of our estrangement, which is sin. We understand estrangement. If, if you've been in a relationship, say you've got a brother or a sister, you might have a, a, a mother or a father, you might be married, and, and something comes between you, and you feel an estrangement. You feel a tension. You feel a distance. You, you, just things aren't right. And until the cause of that estrangement is removed, you don't feel peace, and you don't experience peace. And so we might not always be able to define it, but sin is the cause of our estrangement from God. And until sin is removed, we cannot be in peace with God. And so the reason it's important to think clearly about sin is because thinking clearly about sin helps us think clearly about a Savior. 
See, the problem is that is addressed throughout the story of the Bible is the problem of sin. And the solution that is presented throughout the Bible for our problem of sin is God's provision of a lamb that will take away our sin, remove our estrangement from him, and bring us back into a right relationship with him. And so when John looked at Jesus and declared, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, he was declaring the solution to the problem of human clan. Humankind was found in Jesus, the Lamb of God. See, but we persistently don't see sin to be a problem. And as I've mentioned a couple times already, we live in a culture that is pushing us to ignore sin, to, to take it out of our vocabulary, out of our thinking. And so we've done it in a number of ways. As a culture, we have worked to rename sin. And so what the Bible calls sin, we now give other names to. For instance, the Bible says that adultery is sin. We call, it a we call it an affair. The Bible would say that sexual immorality is something to be avoided and abstained from. But when we're living with someone we're not married to, we simply say we're living together. And so we rename it and we try and take the sting or the bite or the judgment out of the word sin. We trivialize it. We, we do it by, by, by using the word sin in context that make it almost meaningless. And so we say, that was a sinfully delicious dessert. So we kind of say there's something wrong in doing something right. There's something wrong in actually enjoying something that's good. And we do that with sin. We trivialize it. And we begin to say that something that um, really bling, brings us pleasure is actually not that bad. And we reclassify it. This is a little bit more of a difficult one, but we, recla we reclassify sin. And one of the ways that we reclassify sin is to call sin a disease rather than a sin. We should distinguish between moral problems that we call sins, though, and physical problems that we call diseases. In other words, what our culture is beginning to do, and it's not always wrong, but there's a, there's, there's a, we still need to think clearly here, is that a culture, we are beginning to demoralize choices by putting what used to be called sins into disease categories. For instance, we do that with lying. If somebody is a habitual liar, we say that they have a disease. This is happening today, and it's not a sin problem. We do it with eating, and we say, well, somebody has a problem with gluttony, and it's a disease, it's a physical problem, it's not a moral problem. We do it with alcohol. We do it with all manner of sins now that are addictive to us. We now reclassify them as diseases and take them entirely out of moral categories. We do this with sexual addictions. I was reading this last couple of weeks of an article in the USA Today, July 12, 2018, about the World Health Organization who has reclassified sexual addiction as a mental disorder. 
And the author says this is a good thing because it takes it out of morality, it takes it out of religion, and it just makes it about, does this person have a set of issues affecting their lives? And either they do or they don't. I understand there are physiological and there are neurological issues behind addictions, but those don't erase the moral categories that define the behaviors that are the core of those addictions. And so we declassify sin or reclassify sin. We abolish it. There are so many people out there today who say, you know, we shouldn't feel shame anymore. We shouldn't feel guilt anymore. They're false categories. They're false ways of thinking that we shouldn't feel bad when we do those things because they're not bad things to do. But we excuse it. You say, oh, I just had a bad day. Or if we've had a difficult upbringing, and many of us have, or you have, we say, well, you know, I'm justified in a little bit of this. If you, if you only knew my life, and so because we're victims of other people's bad choices, we believe that we then can also make bad choices. See, but no matter how we try and minimize or excuse or erase the notion of sin, the problem of sin does not go away, does it? We feel it. We see it in our children. We see it in our, our, our spouse. You can't get away from its reality. Sin is real, and it evokes the wrath of God. A rose by any other name is still a rose. Sin by, other, uh, sin by any other name is still sin. Defining away sin is tragic. Because when we do that, then we cut ourselves off from the only solution to our sin. And that is a huge issue. The awareness of sin used to be a shadow. Christians hated sin, feared it, fled from it, grieved over it. Some of our grandparents agonized over their sin. A man who lost his temper might wonder whether he could still partake in the Lord's table. A woman who for years had envied her more attractive and intelligent sister might worry that this sin threatened her very salvation. But the shadow of sin has dimmed. Yet everything in the Bible points to the pervasiveness of sin. It describes it as rebellion against God. It describes us as transgression. It it, it describes us as, as stepping over the boundaries that God has set for us. It describes it as betrayal. But, but betrayal in the, in the sense of, of we, we worship false gods and instead of worshiping the God who made us and created us, we worship other things around us. And so we betray our allegiance and our loyalty to God. This is an amazing passage of sin though, or a, pa- a passage of scripture though, because yes, it defines sin and it says we have a problem. But you notice the grace in this text? Behold, Look, Jesus, the Lamb of God, who does what? Who takes away the sin of the world. This is why it does us no good to mask it, to, tri- to trivialize it, to excuse it, to, to, de- to, to reclassify it. But when we own it, we can look to the one that God has provided and realize that there is one who can take it away who can rid me of my addiction to it, who can tear me away from my dependence upon it, who can help me understand how actually bad it is for me and how offensive it is to God. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away 
the sin of the world. And you know what God says he does with our sin? He casts it behind our back. God doesn't forget anything, but he removes it from his memory. He removes it from, his, from thinking about it, and so he casts it behind his back. Can you see what's in the small of your back? You know, you can't, you can't see it. It's just the Bible's way of saying God removes it from thinking about it. He removes it as far as the east is from the west. That's a long, long way. He says he cancels it, its debt. He pays its penalty. He deals with the wrath of God towards it. It's done with. He takes it away. What grace is found in the Lamb of God. There's also exclusivity in this phrase, though, too. And it's this exclusivity that also troubles some people. You see, the Bible teaches that there is only one sacrifice for sin, for anyone anywhere in the world. There is no other way to God but through Jesus Christ. There is no other sacrifice. There is nothing that you can do. There is nothing that you can buy. There is nothing that you can give. There is absolutely nothing you can do other than put your trust in Christ for the sacrifice of your sin and find your relationship with God restored. For anyone, anywhere in the world, there's an exclusivity for this statement. Why? Because of who Jesus is. And there's also something beautiful in this phrase. There is no sin, no sin, for which the blood of Christ cannot avail. It doesn't matter how deep you have gone in sin, it doesn't matter how far you have strayed from God. It doesn't matter how long you have strayed from God. That the Lamb of God is able to erase any and every sin you have ever committed in your life or will ever commit. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I wish people knew this. We would just save ourselves a lot of time and energy. You know, there are so many false gods. There are so many false solutions. The, the wicked one is so good at presenting to us false options that we spend lifetimes pursuing if only we could deal with the angst and the guilt and the shame that we feel to come to the end of the road and find out that none of them have worked. Put your hope in this reality, look, the Lamb of God who takes away your sin, my sin, the sin of the world. And then finally, I just find this amazing as well. We go to the next day in verse 20, in verse 36. The next day, John was standing with two of his disciples. Understand now that approximately 24 hours had passed. Two of his disciples had been standing with him. They had, been, they had probably been with him as he started his public ministry, and they were now following him. They had seen people being baptized. They had actually seen Jesus be baptized, most likely. And now they had heard the day before John declare, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And all of a sudden, Jesus comes walking again. And John's with his two disciples, and he says, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And notice what then is said. 
The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. That's remarkable. It's like the penny dropped. They didn't know the fullness of Jesus, they, but they believed in their heart. There, there, was, there was enough there for them to say, that's the solution to my problems. And they followed him. And I love the fact that John didn't stand in the way. John didn't say, well, come on, you, you need to stay with me just a little bit longer. You know, there's, there's a lot that you need to see, and there's a lot that I can teach you. And, you know, Jesus is going to be around for a little while, so just hang around with me a little bit, and we'll figure this out. No, as soon as they saw Jesus, he let them go. And I hope that's how you are. As you talk with family and friends, as you talk with mothers and fathers, as you talk with your husband and wife, don't put any way, anything between you and the Lamb of God. In fact, as soon as you can, get out of the way and let them see Jesus. Behold, the Lamb of God, God's Lamb, His provision for our problem. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Behold, the Lamb of God who is worthy to be followed. Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Will you follow him today? Father, thank you for this short little time we've had to spend in John's gospel. And Father, I can understand how if all we have in our head of Jesus is this baby born to Joseph and Mary, we would rightly say, why would I follow him? What can he do for me? He might be a good man, but there are a lot of good men in this world. And if we just stay thinking of Jesus as this little baby born to Joseph and Mary, we will miss out on seeing Jesus, the Christ, who, if we put our trust in him, will give us eternal life. And so I pray, Father, today, that for anyone here, when they ask that question again in their heads, who is Jesus? They will have a few things in their mind that will help push them beyond, okay, I think he's a little bit more than just this baby born to Joseph and Mary. I heard somewhere that he was God. I heard somewhere that he's the creator. I heard somewhere that he's life in his hands. I hear somewhere that he's light. I hear that he actually came into this world. And I now have heard that in fact, he is God's lamb given for the sin of the world. And that as they begin to wrestle with that, they would be like John's disciples and they would follow Christ. So be with us this morning, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.